0: You're listening to the Homelessness Services Association podcast. This is an audio-only version of one of our webinars addressing the challenges of frontline and shelter work during the coronavirus crisis. If you'd like to view the video or look at the slides, please go to hsa-bc.ca. All right, we're live now. Welcome to HSABC's webinar, BC Housing and Providers, Challenges and Experiences During COVID-19. There's a couple titles in here because we've got a couple different slideshows today and lots of amazing panelists on the line. So I won't try to incorporate all of that into our title, but we're glad that you're here with us today. So my name is Sarah Kift, and I'm your host for today. And I've worked in the frontline nonprofit sector for over 15 years, including in Vancouver's downtown east side at Carnegie Community Center. And I develop and host webinars for HSABC. I also want to take a deep breath and uh, just acknowledge that I live and work on the unceded ancestral and traditional territories of the Kakite K- First Nation. And I'd also like to mention that today is May 5th, which is Red Dress Day. And that's to honor the memory of indigenous women who have been lost to violence. So in case that wasn't you weren't aware of that or it wasn't on your calendar. something to be thinking about today. Now I'm just going to run a quick poll here just to see who's on the line with us today. I know we're working in the nonprofit sector. Sometimes we have multiple titles or things that might not be in our job description that we do anyway. Um, so do pick the thing that best describes what you're doing right now. And if you chose other, please type that into the chat so I know who's on the line today. Looks like lots of people are voting quickly. That's great. Lots of frontline and outreach workers on the line. Wonderful to see you. Mostly frontline outreach workers today. Some case managers and counsellors. Great to see some board and executive on the line today. It's always helpful to have people making policy and decisions and things with us. Um, Shout out to support staff. I worked in kitchens for a long time. It's very vital and important work. And lots of caseworkers and tenant support workers, glad to see you here as well. So welcome everybody. All right, so that's all the preamble. And I've got lots of great folk on the line here today. So we have, in no particular order, we have Danielle Scott, who is the Assistant Director of Supportive Housing Programs at BC Housing. Give a little wave there. We've got Dominic Flanagan, who's the executive director of the supportive housing programs at BC Housing. We have Alison Howling, the Manager of Education and Community Programs for the Turning Points Collaborative Society, as well as Brandy Mellows, who's the site manager of housing programs for turning points. We have Tanya Fader the Director of Housing for the PHS Community Services Society, and Duncan Higgin, the Senior Manager of Housing for PHS Community Services. So really glad to have you all on the line today. We're going to start with Danielle. And as I mentioned before, there'll be time for a QA and a at the end. But if you have any clarifications, comments you want to make, well, there'll be some little breaks where you can ask each of our presenters throughout the presentation. So feel free to put your questions in any time. But right now... um, we're going to carry on with you, Danielle. Welcome. Um, I'm
1: actually going to, uh, Dominic and I, we only have a handful of slides here, and thank you so much for having us today. Uh, we're going to share the presentation, and uh, we're going to start off with uh, with Dominic. So over to you.
2: Thanks, all. Um, so, yeah, um, so uh, as, as Danielle says, uh, really thank you for this time um, and hopefully this will generate much kind of uh, discussion um, over lessons learned as we've overlapped from the previous kind of 12 months. And so what we wanna do is provide a high level overview of uh, um, some of the work the BC Housing has been involved in, some of the work that you've been involved in the last 12 months. So, uh, so as, as we recognize that, um, our response to this uh, pandemic has been an enormous undertaking. For uh, for BC Housing, but also it's been an enormous undertaking for so so many of the organisations represented on this call as well. Um, And of course, this came on top of all the other work that so many of us were engaged in prior to the pandemic as well. I also just want to acknowledge that um, this uh, the COVID um, pandemic came in the middle um, of another pandemic. The uh um came in the middle of another pandemic which was um the uh, poisoning of the drug supply and that impact of course on so many of the people that we work with um every day and particularly um, um people who are marginalized and people who are homeless so what was being the primary focus of our work our being p- primary focus has been um, about creating additional capacity within the system. And particularly that has been about two primary areas of functions. Um, the filling out of shelters, uh, which prevent the com- uh, transmission of COVID, and also creating additional capacity for people who may be COVID positive or symptomatic. And so what we've done in the last 12 months is create close to 3000 additional spaces across 100 plus communities and they've ranged from community rec centers hotels um, and other kind of structures but mainly hotels and community rec centers um I, the these the programs are targeted a range of populations including people who are homeless at risk of homelessness as well as women and children who are um, at risk of violence because of course bc housing Oversees the violence against women program, the transition house program. So we look to create capacity in that program as well, as well especially those pro- um, populations as the youth who may be experiencing homelessness as well. Um, one of the uh, features of this presentation is around lessons learned. So I just wanted to show you, for those who haven't seen it before, um, something that we introduced very much to start the pandemic um, was the sleeping pod uh, approach. Um, in that slide, um, you can, this is something that we did with PHS who are on this call, as they know, and this is uh, from the Save on Foods Memorial Centre in Victoria. So, it's, I think it's a real uh, example how the pandemic, um, as we have responded, has provided an opportunity for real-time learning. So, obviously, um, what the um the covid has done has just really amplified the challenges about working with people who are homeless and of course what we have seen in the last 12 months is a, an increased visibility of people who are homeless as well that has happened for a range of reasons and we've seen an increase in um, encampments and i recognize this is a provincial call um but the two big encampments that we've been dealing with have been in Vancouver and Victoria. I also recognise, because I sit on a number of kind of provincial calls with uh, um, colleagues from other government organisations like Transport and Health. And in many communities, we've seen spikes in visible homelessness as well, with, so say, uh, small encampments be them in communities like Kamloops, Kelowna, out in the Valley as well. However, in Vancouver and Victoria, we really did... um, so many of the organizations like phs and other non-profits respond effectively in providing opportunities through hotel and leases and then bringing people inside and of course that work continues and it continues continue very much in the moment we're in strathcona these figures now need to be updated because it's over 300 people have uh, been brought inside from strathcona park and victoria continues to be uh happening in the real time now where people um, are being brought inside in Victoria. We re- also, I think, would be fair to recognise that our work is not done here um, and that the work really starts when people are brought inside. And so it, it's, it's a real need to kind of focus on how people can be supported on their journey of recovery once people can access uh, supportive housing. Now over to my colleague, Danielle.
1: Thanks, Dominic. I have to acknowledge in you know- a... Early days. I mean, things things are still so unknown uh, with with the pandemic, but particularly early days where um, we were living in a time of unknown. Um, we, for BC Housing, in terms of supplies, and and um, there was acknowledgement that there really needed a greater access to to meals and personal protective equipment. And with a a global pandemic comes a, a global. Um, reduction in resources for those types of things. So uh, we had to scale up very quickly. But um, I was speaking with a colleague even the other day about, you know, do you remember when we didn't know if we could use cloth masks? Because that was a a big thing at the moment. And of course, we now with much more knowledge and direction from the Ministry of Health and Health Authorities that, you know, items like that are are just fine and and keep us safe. So just to to acknowledge there was a, a lot of learning by a number of different parties through uh, through the pandemic. Um, but we did get things moving. And uh, you know, you can see on the slide here that we were able to deliver over a million um, supplies uh, gloves, masks, hand sanitizer, disinfectant cleaner. Um, even when hand sanitizer uh, early days was, uh, it was really difficult to source. Uh, I believe our procurement department even purchased some aloe vera plants to make our own sanitizer, if it really hand sanitizer, if it came to that. So luckily it didn't. Um, But I I thought it was quite uh, innovative that we'd actually gone gone to that route and also uh, providing some enhanced cleaning, uh, again, dependent on the recommendations of health authorities uh, and just to ensure the safety of uh, the clients that we're serving and, of course, uh, our staff. Uh, As with many other provinces, BC Housing deployed uh, the BC Temporary Rental Assistance Program, and that uh, operated from April to August 2020. And I think what's really incredible about this is that uh, we received about 100,000 applications and uh, over 370,000 rental supplements were deposited to people who um, couldn't pay their rent due to COVID, whether it was job loss or reduction or or something like that. So uh, quite a testament to the deployment of this program and reallocating resources to make sure that we could serve people who uh, were compromised because of the pandemic. So, as, as we've all heard, um, and, you know, some some of this, I suppose, is, is old news, but still a, a response that the province had to, to COVID-19 and um, about no tenant will be evicted for non-payment of rent. And then, of course, tenants in social housing, you um, Uh, had additional resources for their rent reduction if they had lost income as a result of COVID-19. And we'd also made some changes to a couple of other programs that BC Housing delivers, which is the rental assistance program that serves uh, families and the shelter aid for elderly renters, so uh, serving our seniors. And uh, certainly we would want to make sure that folks already in receipt of these rental supplements remain housed and are not compromised uh, due to the pandemic. So I know that was really quick. I think that we said that we'd we'd be brief, but we have a a couple more uh, pieces of information for you and I'll hand it back over to Dominic. So thank you.
2: What we've done is uh, obviously moved forward in terms of hotel purchases as people who were particularly in the lower Mainland here where I am at the moment and also in Victoria um what of course those hotels do uh, particularly the ones we have got on long-term lease or are purchasing is provide the opportunity for long-term housing also in the longer term those ho- ho- hotel provide the opportunity for redevelopment at those uh, sites for redevelopment for affordable rental housing as well um and we are still looking for those kind of opportunities elsewhere in the province as well Recognizing that so much needs to be done um, in terms of of, um, addressing homelessness across BC, and so looking ahead, we are remaining, as we all know, uh, very much in emergency response mode, and we're really, and this is one of the reasons, you know, we we are doing more of these kind of sessions to try and apply lessons learned uh, from the kind of 12 months because we're now into the second phase, if you like, or the fourth, fifth phase. But nevertheless, um, you know, it's real want to try and apply some of the lessons of the, of the previous 12 months as we move forward through to the summer and then to the fall and, and winter of this year. Um, so we are looking at, at long-term housing options, of course, for the people in temporary accommodations. That means acquiring uh, maybe hotels, SROs, particularly attached with redevelopment opportunities. Um, We're looking also to create more um, temporary and permanent modular housing because we recognize at the root of so many of the issues around homelessness is the the supply issue. And we're looking across the spectrum to really make sure that we provide both the uh, range of supportive housing programs, but also look to increase the supply of affordable rental. Um, whether that's through Community Housing Fund or through our partnership with municipalities. And just before I just leave this, I just want to say also uh, a huge thank you for the respective organisations who really was um, went above and beyond the last 12 months.
0: So thank you. Thank you, Dominic and Danielle. Um, we just have a quick question here before we move on to our next presenters. And that is um can you clarify a little bit more about the who the hotels are housing um is there a specific like there's um you're purchasing buildings and hotels is there different breakdowns of who's being housed there
2: and um, the, the broad, um, I'm just making sure I'm not on mute. Yes. So the broad, um, talk population is people who are homeless, at risk of homelessness. We are having some dialogue around specific, um, populations with my cohort, but the hotel strategy, um, um, as we, as we kind of hopefully start to exit, uh, the, this, uh, stage of COVID, the hotel strategy is about, um, that bridge um, to get is to address some of the immediate challenges around homelessness, recognizing we need permanent housing solutions, but we're looking about also, what does that interim bridge look like into that permanent housing solution? So broadly speaking, it's about um, addressing homelessness, recognizing that when we talk like that, we're not talking about a homogenous group of people, but it, it, it is about recognizing the need to uh, provide increased supply and bring, have the opportunity to bring people inside who are either sheltered or street homeless.
0: Right, so the hotels are more of a transitional piece on the road to more permanent housing.
2: Yes, they would be. (laughs) I'm I'm using that term transitional, let's use the term transitional very broadly though, with no prescript beginning and end, yeah. Recognizing that how uh, the route to develop housing in one community, could be very different from the community next up.
0: That makes sense. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, If you have more questions for Danielle or Dominic, um, feel free to keep putting them into the Q&A and we'll we'll get to them as we move along, but I'm gonna hand it over now to Alison and Brandy.
3: So good afternoon, everybody. Uh, We as well are grateful to being asked onto this webinar and pretty excited to share some of our experiences, also a little bit nervous. Um, So uh, we would, first of all, like to acknowledge that we are presenting our workshop on the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Silks people of the Okanagan Nation. Uh, My name is Alison Howling. I am the Manager of Education and Community Programs. And I'm Brandy Mellows and I'm the Site Manager of the Housing Programs. Uh, So today we'll be talking about our experiences of containing COVID-19 at the motels. Um, And we'll be covering uh, prevention and containment strategies, action plan steps, our logistics and issues, and then as well um, our experience uh, supporting a COVID-positive camper. So I don't know, uh, I'm guessing that a lot of people on this webinar um, may have had the experience of getting the dreaded call
4: um, of
3: potentially having a COVID positive um, at your motel, or you might be anticipating that. So we, uh, I I can't make this up. So that's where I'm gonna start with the preamble. Um, It literally, was on a Friday afternoon of a long weekend. As I'm just leaving work, I get a call from my colleague, Brandy, who manages the motel program and she says, I think you need to come here. <laughs> so once I'm there, Brandy informs me that a young man at the motel just received a call from the hospital that he is confirmed for uh, COVID. And from observations, we know this person has interacted with at least 10 people at the motel and all interact with each other. So in consultation with our ED quality assurance and health and safety director, the pandemic health coordinator and the regional harm reduction coordinator, we ensure all staff involved with the motel are notified. A new protocol is implemented for meal delivery, contact tracing and safer supply processes initiated and all motel residents are notified. And we determined that until contact tracing is complete, we would ask that all, all residents at the motel isolate. Then we also talk with our peer wellness checker, who's also residing at the motel and ensure she's extra vigilant should residents who are using substances need her. And we also speak with all the residents regarding isolation and information on safety, naloxone kits and processes for safer use. Uh, We provide the peer wellness checker with a fork kit, CPR mask and protective clothing. And I leave for home feeling optimistic about the whole situation, all right, we've got it all under control. Then that night, as I lay in bed, I think, wait a minute, isolate, are people really going to isolate? And I think of how people need to leave the motel to pull in a bit of extra money, that some interact with residents at our shelter, Then I think of our shelter of 85 people and I begin to become alarmed.
5: So on Saturday morning, our leadership team realizes that we've been thinking about the same things. So we have a Zoom meeting to discuss potential issues and the solutions for them. We discuss the difficulties people will face if we ask them to isolate and they are not able to leave to pull in some added income by collecting bottles, cash jobs or sex work. We discuss the issues of keeping people with substance use disorders alive if they are self isolating and we discuss contingency plans if the virus spreads to our other sites. We decide the best way to support people in isolating is to provide a stipend in lieu of their lost income for isolating. We discuss implementing preventative measures and check-ins for those at risk of overdose. And we create a contingency plan for our other sites. Our contingency plans includes preparing a space in our empty shelter Should we need to use it in planning for staffing and collaboration with our partners if we are short staffed? Then Alice and I get to work on implementing (laughs) these plans. (laughs) Next is starting our action plans.
3: So if I've learned anything in my 10 years working in the social services field, it's that I have to be very specific on directions for people as we all interpret things very differently. So, In writing up our isolation agreement, we make sure that we acknowledge the loss of income resulting from isolating and that if signed, people are agreeing to isolate for a stipend. We then outline what isolation looks like and what people can or cannot do. This includes being able to leave your room and walk around the premises, but you must wear a mask, stay six feet away from other residents and use hand sanitizer. It means not leaving the premises and not having visitors. It covers processes if you have a substance use disorder and need to get your substances. And we even have processes for ordering takeout. It lastly, makes very clear that if you're not isolating as outlined in the agreement, you will not receive the stipend. Then Randy and I asked some peers how much a person might pull in for activities such as bottle collecting or panhandling in a day and we determined that $50 per day for isolating would be a reasonable amount. We then create handouts that included how to respond to an overdose including atypical overdoses, phone numbers for the pandemic health coordinator, our staff and peer wellness checker, then we put together goodie bags for each room that include some candy, cigarettes, the handouts and naloxone kits. We then gear up and go to each room where people are isolating and discuss the specifics of the isolation agreement and ensure they understand it. We talk about overdose risk and safer use and we distribute the good goodie bags. All in all, only two of the residents did not sign the isolation agreement.
5: So over that weekend, the contact tracing was completed and nine people were identified to isolate. Some of them were not residing at the motel. A mental health and substance use nurse came to the hotel and assessed residents for safer supply. And by Monday, we had the medical health officer, the mental health and substance use nurse and a physician from neighboring city accessing and prescribing residents safer supplies. We also hired a security company to secure the grounds. As well, I coordinate with the PHCs, the peer wellness checker and the MHSU nurse and myself, varying times to check on the residents to assess for symptoms, provide supports and inquire of any needs. The conversations with the residents often involved residents expressing their concerns and or fears. The coordination between the organizations helped to prevent exhaustion as each provider shared the load and the ongoing communication kept residents connected and engaged. By Tuesday, a COVID-19 testing team came and tested the identified contacts and two more people were tested as positive. This was also the day we realized that the next day was check issue day. Already, the isolating (laughs) residents were letting us know that they wanted to pick up their checks. And it was pretty stressful. Yes, it was. (laughs) This was alarming as we envisioned potentially COVID positive people waiting in a big lineup at the ministry office and then going to a packed money mark to cash their checks. And they were pretty adamant that they wanted to go. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, We contacted the Ministry of Social Development and Poverty Reduction and we coordinated an exchange where the ministry would get verbal consent from all contacts in isolation to write their checks to our organization and we would give the residents cash of the same value. We then let all the residents know which they agreed to. On Wednesday, we wrote up a receipt for what they received, and their signature confirmed they received it instead of a check from the ministry. We then distributed the cash amount to the residents, had them sign the receipts and then faxed the receipts to the ministry and they sent us a check of the same value.
3: So by Friday, a team came to test the other residents and staff at the motel. We were also the guinea pigs for the point of care testing machine. And at the same time, as this testing was being carried out, synchronicity would have it. And I like, I can't make this out, but um, an identified contact not staying at the motel shows up at our door. She's not feeling well and she asks that she can stay. So of course we immediately get her a room and we also get her tested and she was confirmed positive for COVID-19. She identified two other people she'd been in contact with over the past week. One of those people showed up at our door that night as well and we got her into the motel. By the third week, we coordinated with public health a two-day rollout of vaccines for all our sites and staff. So in this effort, we, we really wanted, um, we know there was a lot of people like at the sites or even, I mean, across the country who are um, having reservations about the vaccination. So so we really wanted to get the information, the accurate information out to our sites, um, to our staff, and then as well to our residents. Um, So we printed posters explaining what the vaccine does. Um, We also uh, were lucky enough to have some doctors who spoke to us a bit more about the research, And so we wrote out all that information and then we had the site managers and the staff disseminate this information, talk to the residents. Um, And as well, there was staff that had reservations too. Um, And then we had people sign up and we coordinated with the public health nurses for um, how many nurses per site and the time allotment. And after the whole rollout, we had 100 residents and 60 staff who were vaccinated. So we considered that a big success. And then over the next three weeks, the contact residents did complete their isolations. Two of the COVID positive residents endured more severe symptoms and remained in isolation longer. But after a little less than a month, our motel was again COVID free. And Brandy and I took some much needed r <laughs> Really, <laughs> it was quite a stressful time. <laughs>
5: So in hindsight, when we reflect on what went well, <laughs> um, the isolation agreement and stipend generally kept people isolating. I believe we had maybe two people that left the premises once they were supposed to isolate. Um, the collaboration with the Ministry of Social Development and Poverty Reduction to get people their income assistance money. That was an unreal (laughs) feat. For sure. The regular communication and support for residents coordinated between the various organizations and our staff. I think the strength in relationships, the existing um, and the existing relationships um, the residents had with myself and Allison was a huge success and made their isolation um, like a big difference. (laughs) Yeah, we were able to have more heart and heart, heart to
3: hearts about the situation and people just felt comfortable, more comfortable just disclosing uh, what was going on for them.
5: The rapid response from Interior Health was also awesome <laughs> in not only getting people on safer supply, but giving them adequate supply. This as well resulted in all but one resident maintaining relationship with the MHSU and continuing to receive safer supply and other supports. Um, ensuring staff and clients were fully informed of the vaccinations resulted in a high turnout um, of the folks that got vaccinated.
3: All right, so struggles, (laughs) what didn't go as well? Um, So one of the things that we absolutely, uh, and this is an ongoing, I I would imagine anybody that's uh, working with motels, this is an ongoing issue. Um, But during the night, there was the odd person sneaking into the motel and staying with residents. Uh, This occurred despite 24-7 security and the installation of a large gate at the entrance of the courtyard. And what did go well in this regard was with the trusting, genuine relationships we had, we were able to do some heart-to-heart and hard, transparent conversations with the residents, Um, and they did stop. And I think a lot of that was related to They were COVID positive and they were putting, you know, we just were able to have those conversations, um, which was helpful.
5: Yeah. And they did stop having visitors.
3: Just those two, those few. (laughs) Having visitors is an ongoing issue.
6: Yeah.
3: Um, In regards to the COVID testing and hindsight, I would have really impressed upon the clients the importance of mouth hygiene prior to the gargle test. Um, Although preparation for the gargle test was imparted to residents, it wasn't exactly followed. And uh, in in our recollection, I don't think any of the gargle tests passed. They weren't sufficient. So, um, and lastly, some of the medical service processes were a struggle, such as having a local safer supply prescribing physician or an available nurse to do blood work. Um, And although these were initial barriers, they did work out in the end and we actually we now have a local physician to prescribe safer supplies. So something we're all very excited about. So lastly, I just wanted to touch on um, our experiences in supporting a COVID positive homeless camper. An issue we sometimes face when partnering with a private motel is that they have barred people that we work with from accessing their motel. And this was the case with the person who was homeless and had tested positive for COVID-19. This meant we were supporting this person in a tent in the park. So I just want to touch on some of the factors briefly that went well. And uh, one of them was the cooperation with bylaw and the RCMP. So they allowed for this person to camp in a specific location and disturb. This, in fact, is their actual campsite. Communication, so when this person, uh, we knew that this person needed to have a phone to be able to communicate with pandemic health coordinator, with us and with mental health and substance use. Um, So, this person did have a phone, but we purchased a battery pack and phone minutes for the phone. Um, So, the battery pack allowed it to be charged at least four times uh, before the battery pack needed to be charged. Um, And as well, minutes, which was something that was needed. But this did allow for all the service providers to communicate with this person regularly. Um, hygiene was something that we were able to facilitate after hours in our building. So at minimum, this person could take a shower and use the washroom. Um, and safer supply delivery was also a, uh, a big, um, win, uh, because the pharmacist came out, met the camper and determined that Uh, she was fine to come out and deliver um, in partnership with the mental health and substance use team. Um, And so, so that was great. Um, And then lastly, I I would say the biggest win was uh, the connection. This camper over the last few years, never engaged with any service and now has built trusting relationships with the organizations providing supports and continues to be connected. And I think a huge part of that, like it, it was pretty neat. Like I could come and, you know, bring AW breakfast and a cup of coffee and you know have have a conversation, you know, and just build those relationships. Some of the struggles. <laughs> so a big barrier for a camper with COVID-19 is not having a bathroom. And in particular a bathroom that is not used by the public. So it was, I mean you're isolating in a tent in the park. Um, so that was a struggle. Uh, but we did meet with bylaw after to brainstorm a solution and determine that should we have another situation like this, we would have a designated camping spot and bring in a porta potty with a lock, and the camper would have a key t- to that porta potty. Um, coordination of services was another str- struggle. Uh, the situation was very different from the motel situation and it happened so quickly and on a Friday, of course, (laughs) that we had not coordinated the system of times each service would call or provide supports. So this meant it was hit or miss on who was calling or bringing needed items. And we did have a meeting afterwards with the health authority and went over how the next situation could go more seamlessly. And this person did just isolate for six days, I think if it had been like a two-week period, then we would have coordinated, like we would be like, hey, eh, we got to figure this out. <laughs> um, food deliveries were also a struggle as they delivered to a tent in the park. So we did work out a landmark where the camper could pick up the food, and as well, the pandemic health coordinator began to bring a cooler food for the whole day. Um, and then charging of the battery pack was also an issue. We decided uh, that every couple of days uh, when I'd bring this camper breakfast, um, I'd grab the battery pack and charge it back at our office for the day. Um, Our last uh, few issues was an adequate safe supply was initial was an initial issue. So the issue of a homeless camper with COVID-19 requiring supports came up on a Friday. So, over the weekend, there were observations uh, by bylaw that the camper was interacting with other campers. And we suspected potentially trading food or cigarettes for illicit substances. Um, by Monday, uh, mental health and substance use did a full assessment, and the camper was prescribed an adequate amount. Another huge piece to this was the risk of overdose, as well as vulnerability of having a safe supply and living in a tent with no protection. Um, The mental health and substance use team and myself had some pretty honest and open conversations with the camper who was also very aware of the risks that they were taking. Um, And of course, didn't want to die of an overdose or be vulnerable to uh, someone attacking him. So um, we just uh, he reassured us and we just did as much as we could in terms of safety for, for that person, including at least having a cell phone, too. Um, the last issue was boredom. So, although the camper reported that they're okay, we're asking someone to isolate in a tent with no ability to entertain themselves. Um, so, you know, we we also don't know if the camper isolated the whole time or not. Um, but all in all, the camper managed to complete their isolation period, and the virus was contained. So, um, that was our links. I won't go to our question page because I think we're leaving questions to the very end, but, uh, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you to us. And we look forward to some questions from you later.
0: Thanks to both of you. Um, you know, just my initial impression is that there was a lot of work done, um, to connect with individuals, a lot of on the ground person by person work, which then, um, kind of brings up the question around staffing and funding, but we can talk about that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> we um, were run ragged, okay? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, we, we, were, we had lots of supports as well. It was great. <laughs>
0: um, I did have a quick question here, uh, just I'll ask you now, and that is, um, who provided the funding for your daily stipends for people who were isolating? They, they say it's a great idea. Yeah,
4: so that came through, like, the COVID response. Funding uh, for the motels that we incorporated that into
0: it. Okay, great. So that's something that might be available across the province potentially.
4: I, I would imagine. I, I would think that um, we just we assessed the risks and the potential for this to spread, not just to the community, but like to all our sites and what that would look like. And we just deemed that this was a very important piece. To, to take a very important step to ensure that, that
0: we could contain this. So, well, and I think it's a brilliant way that you even assessed how much you went, you asked peers and people yeah. how much they would make in a day. And then you made an equivalent amount. I mean, that's a pretty good piece of uh, community assessment there. So Well, thanks to both of you. I'm sure there'll be more questions at the end. Um, Duncan and Tanya. There There we are. Thank
7: you so much.
8: Um, Yeah, so um, definitely want to start off by um, uh, recognizing that we are uh, doing this work and delivering this presentation on the uh, land of the Squamish, the Musqueam, and the Tsleil-Laututh, and um, are very grateful to be working um, on this land
7: particularly on a day uh, as important as, uh, as today, May 5th, um, and all those considerations around that. So very lucky and privileged. Absolutely.
8: Yeah. Um, so um, like uh, Allison and Brandy spoke about, we, uh, we, we also obviously had to uh, change uh, some of our responses and our day-to-day um, activities in terms of supporting um, people in our housing in our shelters, and, uh, and people who were uh, currently experiencing homelessness. And, uh, sorry, and, um, yeah, definitely, you know, we were already dealing um, with the, the poisoning crisis, um, dealing with so many overdoses. Um, and as you can imagine, in the downtown east side and in our projects in Victoria, uh, people were already pretty shattered from the uh the long term effects of, of handling that crisis uh recognizing that that we did have a homelessness crisis um and then covid hit and um the emergent responses that uh were necessary from that uh definitely um uh, tested us all and um but also uh, brought some some welcome changes to uh, you know, how we're responding as a society to uh, specifically issues of homelessness.
7: Yeah. And uh, as demonstrating the, the two presentations uh, we've already seen, uh, Dominic and uh, BC Housing and Danielle, um, we've seen uh, great kind of innovative uh, homelessness initiatives Um the team in the Okanagan the interior having to do the on the ground real COVID positive interventions. What does that look like? And I think for any of us uh, participating in this uh, presentation and, and this discussion really more broadly was the really challenging notion um, that we had multiple dueling health concerns for which COVID was not the most pressing. And I think that's a unique lens um, that many of us in this field have had to uh, Assess and certainly for ourselves within a harm reduction metric, COVID didn't pose the most dire concern. We were trying to build around supports invasive to uh, actually prevent them within our housing stock, within our homeless, our sheltering interventions, um, and our outreach work. But really, the the lead concern started in places of of overdose uh, due to drug poisoning or prohibition crises, as I call it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on certain evenings, moved to exposure. Mm-hmm. and then overlaid uh, COVID. And so how then do we, on a, on a very um, fluid um, risk assessment basis, continue to or mm-hmm. with and those interventions that happened within uh, the SRO, self-contained, and other housing stock continue? Mm-hmm.
8: And luckily, I, I mean, luckily, we were actually already engaged in enhanced outreach in Oppenheimer mm-hmm. Park. Um, so our staff already um, had built trust there so that definitely um, made the conversations a little bit easier, um, and um, obviously pushed forward the um, the more emergent need for housing and also for safe supply. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we immediately started to wherever we could get uh, people, whether they were in the park or in our housing, connected with safe supply. Um, and as part of recognizing that that we still obviously had to respond to. Um, illicit drug use and, and the results of, of toxic supply. Uh, we did also uh, increase uh, overdose prevention areas inside our housing projects uh, where, where staff could um, observe and, and intervene uh, more quickly. And we partnered with the uh, lifeguard app program to have it actually at those stations as well as in anyone's individual room that they were that they were interested in. Um, uh, but yeah, we had to move very quickly. So in both Vancouver and Victoria, we activated uh, in collaboration with BC Housing, um, several projects to get people inside. And obviously, we know that, um, you know, congregate settings are not ideal uh, for a lot of different reasons, but definitely in a pandemic. So so we also had to collaborate with public health, which went very well in finding uh, solutions to get people inside away from the elements that were dangerous for them while also still uh, doing our absolute uh, measured best to control the spread of this, this new pandemic that we've all been dealing with. Um, So some of the things that we did was um, we uh, um, BC housing leased a a hostel uh, down on Hastings here. We were able to activate that very quickly to move homeless people inside. So even though it was a shared setting, it was only, you know, at most three people for a room, sometimes one to two. Uh, and we hadn't done the kind of hostel kind of setup before. So that was a big learning curve and also uh, became a very valuable part of our housing continuum in the downtown East Side. As Dominic mentioned, we also activated the um, Save on Foods Memorial Arena. And that was our first time using the uh, pod sleeping structures, which again, we learned a lot and found them very valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, creating a greater dignity in, in sheltering. Um, and uh, we also activated, we got some uh, federal funding to um, purchase and use RV trailers as um, COVID isolation units that are self-contained for homeless individuals who uh, would have trouble accessing the other kind of more traditional House supports in order to isolate and then why don't you talk about newfound shelter sure.
7: response so, um in in those discussions those intersections what we what happened in this discussion around COVID-19 is that we've all been told uh province-wide that the the key to, to success is isolation and uh and that's wonderful for the percentage of us that have a domicile and a place for which isolation is a possibility. The entire structure broke down pretty quickly, as I'm sure the vast majority of people on this uh, participating in this webinar uh, experienced when you remove the notion of domicile, and now there isn't a framework by which uh, isolation can hold. So we operate the newfound shelter uh, on the 300 block of uh, East Hastings. Uh, That shelter is a health intervention in a prohibition crisis or drug overdose crisis um, that has seen thousands of overdoses occur in it uh, over the last three years. Um, Those thousands of overdoses are uh, reversed as any of the medical concerns or medically intervenable health crises that overdoses are often. Um, And it meant that we were making a metric up of risk. We were creating a metric of what was the truly life-threatening risk component. And so New Fountain Shelter and us and Tanya and our leadership, we made the decision that, in fact, um, reducing the number of individuals accessing that space was significantly less harm reduction or reduced less harm than holding the numbers that we always have because the greater health concern was never COVID, it was death by overdose. But that meant that we had to have creative and unique um, overdose or me, overdose and COVID risk mitigation uh, measures. It meant at one juncture, we had created a low um, GERDIE, um because there was that great fear that many of us experienced that if you uh, used assisted oxygen through a nebulizer or uh, an Ambu bag, that you may nebulize COVID particles into the surrounding air, um, requiring the shutdown of the shelter. So one of the creative, like on the ground, client-centered approaches that was taken was be building a gurney so that if someone were overdosing, we could move the human onto the gurney, race them out onto East Hastings, and do overdose interventions on the street, not risking the closure of the shelter. That is to illustrate that when we take deep client-centered approach, not clinician, so not us, but the client being the focus of of the work that we do in a health intervention, we're able to find very creative, very simple solutions to operating the work that we do, operating the projects we have, um, holding the the active risks at uh, honouring them, the ones that are are the most uh, damaging. The other thing that we had to do in that shelter context was that it's a co-ed shelter with a women's identified space that's eight units and through discussions with health BC Housing and others it was very clear that we were going to have to repurpose the uh, women's identified space into an isolation space because we would have individuals as we've all experienced who would be arriving for shelter on a nightly basis presenting with all of the presentations that our populations often have, which are febrile, a fever,
8: coughing, coughing
7: <laughs> and not feeling great, yeah. um, which coincide with all of the uh, symptoms that we're, that we're all told to watch for with COVID. Um, and so, what it meant is you're often, I'm sure we've all experienced this, we're often having this discussion where do we, how do we support this person best? How do we diminish potential spread? And what that meant is that we would activate the uh, women's identified space as a space for individuals who are symptomatic awaiting testing. Um, part of the other learnings that I'm sure we've all shared here and experienced ourselves was, of course, that once again, the systems of intervention are geared towards uh, normative hours of operations, um, which suit me and my family very well, um, but don't. Meet the uh, the atypical, a normative hours of many of our marginalized, homeless uh, individuals that we all serve. Um, we all know that it is riskier to sleep at night if you're homeless than it is to sleep during the day when the norms are out. Um, and so, when we create interventions, we often create interventions that are clinician centered, that are centered around the hours of operations that we all want to participate and activate and, and live within, um, but don't. Don't actually hold at their core the hours of the population we're trying to serve. And so, what we were battling often was uh, trying to find the stop gap, the, the 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. window, when things are most active in certain populations, certain core uh, groups of the populations we serve. And how can we find these immediate, quick interventions within supportive housing, within shelter, within outreach? Oppenheimer, uh, was a year ago and we've just spent the last, uh, 13 days, day 13 in Strathcona, uh, park in Vancouver. So to outreach.
8: After our outreach teams being, you know, <laughs> yeah. there for many, many months, yeah. uh, so again, having having built some relationship, which again makes makes it, um, you know, when there's all of a sudden the very emergent um, reality of having to move, as Dominic was saying, about 300 people inside. The majority of those moves inside happened within nine days. Um, so it's uh, <laughs> it's it's big work. It's heavy work. Obviously, getting people inside is the best. Um, for health outcomes and for also even if they are moving into a shelter scenario or a shared setting more congregate um, or somewhere even without, um, without self-containment, without their own bathroom or kitchen, it, it allows us to keep them safe, get them inside. As we know, people's health outcomes vastly diminish the longer that they're, that they're sleeping rough and sleeping outside. Uh, It allows us to uh, get them better access to health care and ultimately into the ultimate goal of permanent self-contained housing. I'm just going to see here. So um, just a little bit of tiny bit of history. I won't go into it a lot. Um, But one thing I'm bringing this up because one thing that we noticed uh, with COVID was that are the SROs that are, are um, a big fixture in the downtown east side, um, partly just because of the history of the neighborhood? You know, the, the, this neighborhood has always had SROs, but they were never meant to be permanent lodgings. They were meant for seasonal workers, yeah. dock workers, uh, you know, people transient coming workforce. in. Yeah, yeah, a transient workforce. And then they'd come and spend their money staying, you know, in, in these hotels and, and accessing the pubs in the bottom. And, uh, you know, um, so they were never really meant to be permanent housing. But when we first started uh, housing people with uh, substance use issues, with uh, mental health issues and, and a, a myriad of other medical issues um, and uh, you know could only afford welfare rate, um, the SROs were kind of our only original housing stock to, to move that population inside in Vancouver. Um, and what we noticed during COVID was because it is shared bathrooms, there's no real kitchen facilities um, and, and not proper common area spaces, but they're, they're, very, they're very much, you know, little communities in their own. So people spend a lot of time together in these tiny, tiny rooms and then are sharing bathrooms. So what we were seeing with COVID was that our, our SROs really, um, really mirrored and imitated um, what happens in congregate shelter settings yes. that are full. Um, and so we quickly recognized that, that those residents were at a very kind of congregate setting risk. Um, and so that was, that was a big lesson for all of us in thinking forward about how we deal with, with situations like pandemic Um, like COVID-19 because you know we've dealt with norovirus before we've dealt with Shigella we've dealt with all sorts of things that hit our vulnerable communities extra hard and in places like Newfoundland Shelter congregate settings and as we have seen with other with other disease spread our SROs are, are also more greatly affected by that.
7: It's an interesting parallel when we think 20 years ago, Tanya was doing tuberculosis outreach into the exact same hotels that we were finding health interventions for yet another respiratory condition. And what it meant was we were doing work in the SROs, as anyone here does, or in the hotels we operate or self-contained. And the lens by which we shifted was that we were going to have to bring in external supports To those settings. Recognizing limitations of the infrastructure, understanding that's an important um, piece of the continuum of housing was that that was the impetus behind why we pushed to Fed funding and otherwise to be able to access five RVs. Because what it came down to was the conversation around what do you need to isolate? Well, you need a space, you need facilities, you need okay. running water and you need a place where we can find you and bring you the support you need. And so that's where we landed on having experienced hundreds of uh, COVID transmissions within our population we serve um, and, and who live within our, pop- uh, our, our continuum of housing was that we were going to have to create a space away from that where we could break transmission points. This is on top of the fact that in Vancouver um, there were the COVID hotels um, that were available to individuals who had tested positive. What was, what had occurred though, and I'm sure some of you have experienced this when someone tests positive for COVID, they become part of the health continuum of care and the health wraps around them. What doesn't happen is if you, if Tanya and I are street brother and sister, and I test positive for COVID, I'm going to a COVID hotel. Tanya is no more a medical concern today than she was yesterday. And she remem- remains in the concrete setting of the shelter, the park, or the SRO, and that's what really pushed us forward to find those interventions awaiting testing or awaiting testing results, mm-hmm. which was the fact that we were moving people rapidly into uh, five different um, RVs throughout the city of Vancouver on other sp- uh, properties that we operate in their parking lots.
8: Mm-hmm. And and definitely those, uh, you know, all the same things that everybody else dealt with, trying to get PPE, changing our PPE protocols for staff, encouraging residents with education, information, PPE, uh, hand sanitization, drastically upping our, our cleaning game, which we're already really good at, but adding these extra, very um, very much pandemic-related uh, sanitization responses. So yeah. so it really did change everybody's landscape. And then in these settings, of course, we were really, really extra concerned about the vulnerability of our community members that, that we're, that we're dealing with. So um, the, the SRO experience was, uh, has been a very, very interesting one. And, yep. and we have learned a lot and uh, you know, we've been discussing how it, it does also uh, mirror the long-term care settings um, that what they've been experienced with being in shared kind of you know almost dormitory style sleeping scenarios where the, where that spread can happen very quickly quickly in vulnerable populations so uh, you know obviously senior populations are, are extra at risk and then we have we have all sorts of vulnerabilities and, and medical vulnerabilities within the, the populations that we serve. so that was a, a very interesting one so um, uh, we were uh, like many many other organizations in the province uh, collaborated, um, with BC housing when they either leased or purchased, um, uh, new facilities and, and those were in the form of hotels and motels. And, um, one of the things that's really, really great about them is that they're ready to go. They're, they're already operational that, you know, they have occupancy permits. They, you know, even if they're, you know, ideally you want one that things are in as best shape as possible around electricity, plumbing, fire code, um, you know, sprinkler systems, all of that. But other than that, they are almost like their purpose built buildings for our population, because they are self contained units. Right. So so we can, we can provide them with bathroom and kitchenette area, we can deliver uh, food to them that's all individually packaged. um, And they can refrigerate it or heat it themselves, um, which is obviously ideal. Uh, the, the other thing being is that, yeah, we can, we can activate them right away, but they, we can make them operational right away. And, uh, so that was, that was really, really key. Um, one yeah. of the things that we, we noticed when, um, when it's which I think, um, which I think some other, yeah, I think Allison brought this up, maybe Allison or Brandy that, um, you know, when you're dealing with private landlords, um, yeah it's a it's a different case scenario uh, which really can throw up a lot of barriers so there was some instances where we're say trying to help people move inside from parks or surrounding area where we would all of a sudden learn of like no there's this barrier of you can't bring your bike up to your room or you can't have a pet or you can't smoke or you can't do whatever because it was still a private hotel owner so that's been a particularly valuable part of BC Housing and the provincial government and and the city in Vancouver actually purchasing properties, um, that has really decreased a lot of the barriers that we otherwise, and originally in some cases, came up against.
7: So, and these when we're purchasing hotels and we need to, we're in emergent crises. We've been in emergent crisis of varying different health issues um, around uh, overdoses in this province and now COVID. And uh, all of us in the field are here because we're in the caring field. So when we see six hotels, uh, which will produce potentially a thousand units of housing, the need is, is dire. And one of the great things like Tanya was saying about being able to move individuals in a pandemic into self-contained units was not just a capacity to offer washrooms and places to wash your hands and food and indoors and all those things. The thing that we all know is that we now have a place that I can connect with you. I can, can, I can connect with you. If I do test positive Duncan Higgin lives at, you know, 90s tastings currently, um, as opposed to Duncan Higgin last seen at Insight, then at the market, then at Strathcona (laughs) and now maybe back to pigeon park bank, um, which is from a vector control perspective, uh, a near impossibility.
8: Mm-hmm. So. Sorry. Um, yeah, so one of the things that happened in Victoria, which was, you know, we learned a lot having the sheltering at the arena and then um, the these photos here of um, the old Paul's Motor Inn, which the province purchased, um, which we were able, again, in collaboration with them uh, to make very quickly operational with some uh, really much needed fire upgrades and some other things that moved really quickly. Um, And to be able to transition people from that, you know, more dignified sheltering setting uh, where they had their own, you know, sleeping pod area, um, which went very smoothly, but it also gave our staff huge opportunities to connect with people around assessing their housing needs. What are their actual housing needs? Some, you know, and, and some people just, you know, they, they need a rent subsidy, right. Where other people really, really need supportive housing. And that's the majority of, the, the population we were dealing with. And it's really magical that we were able to transition so many people from the arena, uh, some of them into other operators buildings, because that was the right fit because we have been able to assess it. Um, but we were able to move a significant number of people who were, had already formed community together in the, the shelter of the arena into Paul's motor in which we have renamed the Soleil. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's a, that's the idea of a big win. That's what you want shelters to be, whether they're emergent or otherwise, is um, a good spot to land, get connected, even get some stabilization with medication, build those trust relationships, and then be able to continue to support them as they move inside into permanent housing. What we're talking about here overall, that, that, that is one of the great um, things that, can, that comes out, out of emergent responses like a pandemic is, you know, we have moved further on safe supply and decriminalization yeah. as we go, which is Fabulous. Uh, the other thing that we've seen is an improved response to homelessness, of which sheltering is an important key to that because it is emergent. It's it's the the quickest way to get people safely inside, mm-hmm. and we also found that it does help stabilize people to the point where you know what they're probably going to be more successful in their housing, whether they're moving to to you know a private building or it's or, an, or a, another service provider's building or whatever that is. Um, they've been able to stabilize. And get healthy and get fed and have showers and all that stuff to be more successful in their housing. By successful, I mean not going to get evicted. They're going to settle in quicker and easier. Uh, and uh, they're going to have the, the trust that, that they're coming home.
7: And so, from the COVID perspective, when we talk about these challenges and, and successes of it, what we return to is that without housing, without a place where we can actually support you in that isolation that isolation is an impossibility and and so we return to this idea that we these health interventions as as, as beautifully demonstrated by the fact that we're doing outreach to COVID positive individuals in a park without access to a bathroom uh speak which with ergo speaks to the fact that some form of isolation would be limited in, in my capacity to do that, it's certainly, um, is that we're returning once again, all of us, to the, the idea that we recognize that emergent sheltering, transitional housing and self-contained units are the solution and in our capacity to be able to support individuals through any number of pandemics and health concerns. TB, well, I mean, I, I recognize that tuberculosis exists within our populations today, but at, at the crisis level that 22 years ago Tanya was dealing with on the downtown side to COVID, we return to the capacity of individuals to come indoors where we can have an actual health intervention that meets some of their needs.
8: Mm-hmm. So we really feel and have really seen and really experienced the, the necessity of, of each of these responses. And the the, uh, the acquisition of the hotels and motels has been a very important piece of adding to that continuum. Uh, temporary modular housing also is a way that goes you know, it allows us to activate housing quickly, but obviously not as quickly as a hotel or a motel that's already operational. Putting in a shelter really quickly, um, and then obviously, then that allows us to to have places for people while we wait for the new brick and mortar and permanent modular builds to come online. So it gives us this diversity of housing allocations and timelines uh, for for rent and move-in readiness. Um, so it, it's been a it's been a big um, big thing for us to be part of um, establishing and learning about um, all the ways that the different parts of the continuum can work. Um, And we will just kind of um, end with uh, one of our ideas around, you know, the the challenges and the limitations that we discussed earlier around um, the SROs that that are not self-contained units, uh, that we really want to be kind of considering them as transitional housing with the ultimate goal of without displacing community yeah. of, of moving people on to self-contained units for, the, for their more permanent landing spot. And, um, and part of that, which Dominic touched on is actually um, the, the purchase of sites, not just for renovation, but for complete redevelopment, which um, yeah. we have a very good example of.
7: So part of this, ethos and this evolution of the the hotel stock as an emergent uh, crisis intervention can go back to Woodward's building, which was a landmark uh, development in Vancouver here, but known within the supportive housing unit. To make that squat and house that squat, individuals moved from the Woodward site to the Stanley Hotel. People moved into the Stanley Hotel, allowing for the Woodward's building to be constructed with over 100 units of supportive housing going into that. We are currently moved everyone from the Stanley Hotel, years later, into other housing stock. And we will see the Stanley uh, Hotel be redeveloped from SRO into self-contained, dignified housing um, by end of year. Uh, And those individuals first ready to return. The the health interventions that we're all experienced return once again, and, and always in my view, have returned to a housing first initiative. And from the COVID learnings that I remember, I took away most deeply from the last 14 months that we've all work through was a deeply client-centered approach. If we're not having those one-to-one uh, conversations with individuals, as in what do you need for your needs to be met, we will never have a successful intervention and uh, an and isolation component. And that was the deep learning. Uh, there's often this failed notion of the homeless as a homogenous group when no one else on this call gets run- lumped into homogeneity homogeneity and so again we hear it often well you know what about the people in supportive housing they must need this well they probably all need something different and uh and being willing to have a destigmatized lens as proven by other providers on this call talking about what do you need for a stipend to get through today what does this look like does safe supply work for you are you being able to access stimulant safe supply is the stimulant safe supply not working for you okay so none of the safe supplies working for you what do you need
6: Mm -hmm. it's like
7: like what is this how are we going to how are we going to reduce harm within the illicit pain management field that you have to access to have your needs met that was the deepest one all the cleaning that everyone did all the ppe we all did uh, all those things for me returned we can do all that to really come down to supporting individuals was to listen to their needs and meet them every way we can
8: and and just to end on that that's uh, we we were actually able to have people isolate uh, across our continuum very successfully and very cooperatively uh because we did check with them what do you need to stay isolated and yeah. we'll check with you every day uh, if, if we day. see you leaving your room we'll check mm-hmm. in with you and say what do you need to go back inside and stay there and, and but I did want to note that, you know, like everyone else, a lot of our community members were very frightened about COVID and didn't want to make their friends and their family sick. And so we actually had a very high compliance to isolation as long as we were meeting people's needs. Um, I, we did not put a questions panel at the end of our thing, but obviously it doesn't mean that we're not open to questions. We'll, we'll take
0: them <laughs> at the end if you prefer. Yeah. <laughs> That was amazing, all of you. Um, But Duncan and Tanya, thank you for providing the overview, but also some of the learnings. Um, I think that's really crucial. So, I kind of have a couple of reflections here. Um, The first one being, and and a question that comes out of that. Um, So, the, the theme to me that I reflect upon is that it is about going individually to people and finding out what their needs are. Um, now, uh, this requires a lot of staffing <laughs> and time. And so, how have your organizations shifted your staffing model to reflect that? Because a lot of times, I know I worked in a community center setting, that sometimes the need can feel overwhelming. There's long lineups, you, you know, you feel like you're stretched. Because there's so many people that need something. So how have you um, made that work <laughs> to really be able to take the time that you need to, to check in on people individually, to support them, to find creative solutions? I know, Allison, I was really impressed by how much work went into that one person who was isolating in their tent. There's a lot of resources and time that went into that. And uh, how, how have you funded that? How has that worked for you? How have you trained people in that? And that's so, open to everybody
4: okay so for for us um there was a lot of collaboration with other service providers so we really coordinated with the pandemic health coordinators and the mental health and substance use team at the motel we also have the peer wellness checker so brownie coordinated that you and she would call people as well right wouldn't necessarily be that she's going to everybody's room and and she do that in the morning and then the mental health and substance use team came in the afternoon and the pandemic health coordinators called in the evening and then the peer wellness checker called at night. So that's how we kind of coordinated. So there was just a nice distribution and equal share of the load uh, for the homeless camper. Yes, a little bit different. Um, and that just like for me personally, I went out to do some of those things. It was a perk for me. I just really enjoyed and wanted to do that it wasn't necessarily but yeah i mean normally if those situations came um again particularly with campers we would coordinate better and distribute the, the services and it wouldn't just be and it was we did distribute but yeah and for the few weeks at the hotel it was just allison and i um working every day but. Mm-hmm
8: yeah we we definitely earlier on in the pandemic um faced some real staffing challenges we had a very significant number of staff go on leave and uh, you know especially here in Vancouver not so much in Victoria it was a bit more of a stable crew there it's kind of a a smaller almost like when we started in Vancouver here you know everybody knows each other and they they just like stayed the course but um in Vancouver were quite large and across a lot of different projects. And um, because people had, you know, vulnerable family members at home or they had their own fears about COVID, um, yeah. we, we did have some real staffing crises, which really meant that, um, you know, we did have to increase our number of excluded staff so that we're not restricted to those particular hours of work or whatever. And we all just pitched in and we were all ready to work Front desk, We were all ready to do whatever it took. We, you know, Duncan's been in the park a lot as a, as a senior manager. I know a lot of people wouldn't see that as typical. I mean, it's partly Duncan style and it's partly PHS style, but it's also just the, the needs as they're presented in a very, um, very extra way. We were joking, one of our colleagues, somebody gave him a Corona extra t-shirt from the year <laughs> We're like, well, that's just kind of describes everything happening right now um and and then what we found though was really um moving forward some really beautiful things of people new to this work coming in in the middle of a pandemic wanting to help so say we're only working part-time at a bar now or weren't sure if they were going to be laid off or whatever but had always kind of wanted to do this work and and some of them already worked in the downtown east side or uh, you know the pandora neighborhood in victoria and uh, really hats off to people to coming into this already very complicated, difficult work in the midst of a pandemic that everybody has been frightened of. I, I have nothing but respect yeah. for those staff that came and joined us. And, and since that happened, we've just been training people constantly, bringing new staff on constantly and, um, and just getting them trained up, ready to go. And that has really, really uh, solved a lot of our, our yeah. staffing issues.
7: So, and, and what it comes down to every, every time in the caring field, or certainly this corner of the caring fields, is uh, this work is about a philosophy and it has to be about, uh, there are way easier ways to make a paycheck. So hopefully what we're all doing is that we're, we're actively supporting and embedding in individuals that well, this is the, uh, really the thin edge of, of medicine that uh, these interventions are something that we are choosing to. I, I've, worked, I've got two small children and a, and a partner with very low standards who stays with me, and I was <laughs> working nights in, a, in, uh, in shelters because that's what was required sometimes, and those interventions when we're talking about uh, the complexity of concurrent disorders. And uh, and part of the work that's happening in this uh, COVID year, if we're going to take a learning from it, uh, was that there was a requirement um, to more broadly understand addiction as any other concurrent disorder, you had no choice. It's been in DSM-5 for a very long time, but uh, but we were forced to bring it to the fore of the conversation. It means that I don't want to have another conversation with a senior supportive housing or what we deem old folks' homes. I recognize that language, air quotes around that. Um, I don't want to have another conversation where somebody said, well, we found a crack pipe in a 78-year-old individuals at the Catholic charities of of marriage we don't want to house them anymore that is no different than I don't want to house someone with diabetes
6: Mm. if we're going
7: to take anything away from COVID is that those concurrent disorders do not get ranked on a uh on a scale of palatability
8: and of worth and and
0: of deserving Mm -hmm. yeah so that really got me. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> it's important important to rethink some of these priorities that have been a part of our healthcare and home housing settings in the past. So I just want to wrap up this discussion around staffing because um, you kind of touched on this. Um, how did you balance um, the so? I guess I'll backtrack a little bit at the beginning of the pandemic, we ran a lot of webinars for staff and managers who were just scared um, because they didn't have enough PPE. They weren't sure how things were spread and people were trying to balance their own risk versus caring for their communities. Mm -hmm. And so how have you worked that with your staff and and talked about that and figured it out? Because obviously, um, you know, you need to take care of your staff as well as, manage absolutely. exposure that way
8: absolutely i think um, luckily for for us and our example of it we recognized ppe uh needed to come in and it needed to come in fast and it was here to stay <laughs> um so we had to get really creative in order to um, get those initial ppe supplies before um, bc housing and others could be providing us with that and that included buying hand sanitizer from breweries that had repurposed some of their stuff, at, at, amongst other things uh, for breweries. Yeah, <laughs> um, and then a lot of it we immediately also established um, COVID education and information boards, uh, some for residents and some for staff, and in, in every single one of our projects, and kept them updated, and then turned them also into binders. We also had. Um, our CEO, Michael was sending out regular updates. Cause as we all know, the protocols changed all the time. This is how you respond to an OD. This is how you sanitize. This is what PPE you need. Um, it just was like a shifting bog all the time. So there was regular updates sent in all staff emails. And then we continue to update our information. We also, I know in, in housing, we, um, we started having uh, biweekly managers meetings so that we could just get all the information out to them, and then they get it out to the wider staff. It goes in our electronic logs, and just lots of ongoing discussion, meeting staff about their concerns. What are you concerned yeah. about? Okay, let's let's ask our, let's ask our clinical director. What's the response to this? What are the risks? What is the safety? What's the best thing to do? And it's just been kind of a being able to stay on our toes and just constantly re re redeliver necessary information and and also, you know, offer some, some relief to people that, you know, maybe, maybe we can, maybe we have a scientific answer to this. That's, that's gonna, that's gonna help you out. The
7: the other component is that we were privileged. I mean, it's a history of long work, but it was also an organization for us that were the first to house people with HIV AIDS actively. People were Mm -hmm. being evicted for that. Like, Put on the street, and we have individuals that we share an office with whose fight wasn't in. It was we, they'd already been here. Like the people who talk about HIV/AIDS and other diseases that we don't know the transmissibility of. We don't know like how you contract it. We know that people die very quickly of it. Die hadn't princess die had yet to touch the hand of somebody with with HIV, with AIDS, and so we're built. We're lucky to be built on this framework that like COVID is just one of the. Myriad of, of health concerns um, that already exist when you're coming into the field. So you're working with people with HIV, AIDS, you're working with Hep C on a daily basis. And so when we're able to assess that and talk to people about that, and what we're talking about is like, hey, no, honor your fears, all are your concerns. We don't know. We come back here. We protect ourselves as best as possible as we can. We'll run a good view. Every piece of information we have. I believe fear is born of the unknown. I think it's not my own philosophy we've all heard a thousand times um honor that address it take the tough feel the tough questions don't be afraid to say i don't know and and also
8: don't be afraid to say if you can't do it that's okay Mm -hmm. right some people will be able to some people won't and people have different scenarios different different situations at home they have you know we have lots of staff that have their own complex trauma to deal with to navigate so um you know lots of lived experience in our staff so I think uh, just really honoring everybody's decision and autonomy within a very, very challenging time.
0: Hmm. Allison Brandy, did you want to say anything on that? I, uh,
4: just listening to uh, Tanya and, and Duncan, very similar processes uh, that we've done as well, getting the PPE in immediately. Uh, same with the masks and then lots of dissemination of education for staff and residents as well. Um, and we've also, uh, we are continuing to do a weekly huddle via Zoom where any staff can jump in as well. And we have the leadership team on there and um, just update people or if they have questions, or if they want to update us. Um, we just try to have like very open and accessible um, conversation and
0: discussions with, uh, with people. So. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's, um, it speaks to resources, right? So having enough staff, like you were saying, continually training and bringing new people on so that there is room for people to take time off if they need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is another question for frontline providers, but I, I do have some questions for you, Danielle and uh, Dominic as well, on a structural level. So stay with us. <laughs> um, <laughs> And this is a question around barriers to moving people inside in the first place. Um, So a lot of people, this question says are very resistant to being in any kind of shelter or housing system, which is in their minds less safe. So, you know, given I really liked Duncan, how you framed isolation and COVID as just the latest health crisis. Um, It's not, it's not something we haven't encountered before in terms of trying to get people to, to be inside, but what, what worked for you in these scenarios in those people that were resistant to I don't get believe, any housing?
7: I fundamentally don't believe people are resistant to housing. I think people are resistant to rules that I don't face in my housing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I'm so sick and tired of a broken narrative about housing ready. If you're homeless, you're ready for housing. Is our housing ready to support you? We need to shift this dialogue.
6: Mm-hmm. Like,
7: are, have we built housing that's sufficiently sturdy to support you or Kenya's destructive behaviors of which, like, there's holes behind us. We hide them behind all day
6: It's better to walls, walls than people. Yeah. Um,
7: but that, see, I don't, I think we actually do an injustice when we approach it from that angle. I think we, uh, no one is hard to house. In fact, the homeless in Oppenheimer and Topez, in Strathcona, they're tremendously easy to house. They'll take housing that none of us on this call will accept. Hmm. They are, however, hard on housing. Have we built housing stock that is sufficiently geared towards their needs?
8: And are we staffing and are it? We, are, we, are we interacting yeah. with them yeah. in a way that they're, that they're going to ultimately feel safe and supported? And does that take time? Yes, it does. Yeah. Are there big transition periods from when you first move somebody inside to one year, two year, five, ten years down the road, absolutely there's a difference. But I think the fact that, um, you know, and, and, and Dominic was uh, was privy to a lot of this work in the parks as well. I mean, if you think you can, if you moved 300 people inside in nine days, it means people were ready to go inside.
7: Um, and so those resistance strains, I think is actually honoring, part, sometimes it's addiction. Sometimes we, we have, we have, Even in our own sector, even in a sector that makes empathy, care, and compassion its lead, um, we have actively made places where we judge people for their disease or their illness of addiction, which we would never do when we talk about COVID. We never do when we talk about HIV. We would never do if we talk about diabetes. And so part of those things is is, uh, my view of the overdose interventions of the crises that's the leading cause of death over Mm -hmm. the last windows um, is that it is insufficient for us to have Narcan and auction all those things, what we need to have is a de-stigmatized environment where we are no longer shaming people for those behaviors. Also, like I get it, man. I'm 38 years old. If I came into a place and somebody who's 10 years my my junior was like, "Hey, hey, hey. no guests," <laughs> like, "Cool story, bro." Uh, let me tell you about how I feel about this. And we do this. Tanya and I do this i say all that knowing that we operate no guests, knowing that we have these controls, these mechanisms, and, and knowing that that's part of keeping people safe. I just believe that it has to be part of the narrative of the discussion. And it can be that the housing stock isn't yet in a place where that individual accepted, but I don't think they're resistant to housing. I don't think they're resistant to coming inside. I think they're resistant to some of the structures that exist within what we're, currently have on offer, what we currently have to bring to them.
8: And we need to keep learning. Keep
7: learning. One of them puts the onus on the homeless to change. The other puts the onus on us to change. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah
0: great. <laughs> um, Allison and Brandy, did you want to comment on
4: that? I have
0: to 100% mirror. agree.
4: <laughs> um, absolutely. It, it For sure. Um, we, we found most people are very happy and want to go into the motel program. Shelter program, less inclined and and for the same reasons, exactly what Duncan and Tanya are saying, rules, you know, you've got someone 20 years younger than you that's telling you, Hey, wash your hands or, you know, those different issues that um, it's hard for people. It's Mm -hmm. us that we need to look at as opposed to, you know, more how can we facilitate housing for people? And I, I think as well, like in a, in a large shelter situation, it's hard because you are maintaining safety and you're trying to have a bunch of people get along. Um, I definitely find that with the pods, it's way better, because people actually have a little bit of their own space, their own little drawer and bed, right? Like, huge difference just to like, nest. Like We all need to have some space and to have some downtime or privacy, right? Yeah, Um, yeah, the same barriers. Uh, but definitely, we we found with the motel, people want that, and for the same reason, you get your own space, your, your own walls, bridge, well, watch TV whenever yeah. you want, or you know, just have that privacy and yeah. dignity. So
8: yeah, and I think people's, you know, like all of us, people's needs, like people that we have a certain shelter, their needs change as they go. For for some people, they're they're more comfortable coming into the sheltering world because that's the world that they know, sure. and. Yeah. And so, so then, then you have them at the shelter for a while and then they can start to kind of contemplate something different. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I had, you know, eight roommates (laughs) and that was fun at the time. Do I want to do that now? No, I don't. Do I do, you know, we, we all want to travel again. How many of us are going to, you know, want to stay in a a hostel like we used to be so willing to do, you know, things, people's situations, needs and wants change. And so, and we have to be able to meet that.
7: And those, and so, in honoring the question, how do we bring people indoors and how do we support people who are really resistant? It's that human connection, it's that work you guys did in a park with somebody who's COVID, who's in a park, in a tent. We make and start those. It's no better illustrated by the fact that, not only did you support somebody with COVID, that you now have connectivity with that human. But like through that outreach and through that interpersonal connection, mm-hmm. that we can start to understand what are the actual needs that you have. And that's the deep client-centered care that I talk about versus clinician-centered care, which I often find in some regards limits our capacity to help people with what are deemed to be the behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we often put the clinician ahead of the client only in this sector. Like almost, almost to a point of exclusion, um, uh, is is uh, we talk broadly in society as client-centered care and uh, and those types of things, right up until your client doesn't have normative behaviors. Yeah. So that's the people that 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 work is what has to mm-hmm. happen to be able to have somebody go like, right? Maybe this there is an option out there for me.
8: Maybe I want to talk to Brandy about something that I wouldn't have talked about a month ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful work.
0: Yeah. Well, people are really appreciating your responses here in the chat. Um, So, let's just talk structurally then because I get the sense that there's a shift happening, that COVID has kind of um, fast-tracked some things, rearranged some funding, made us think differently about housing models, and I would invite Danielle and Dominic to join us here. it sounds to me, and I could be totally wrong, <laughs> that we have a new kind of housing continuum emerging out of this, and access to housing stock that wasn't there before. Um, do either of you want to talk about how this has changed BC Housing's approach, or what you're looking forward to, or some of the some of the things you're thinking about? You know, now that we own the province owns hotels that you're running, and we're thinking about how SROs are not ideal for people in lots of scenarios?
2: Uh, yeah, no, these are good questions. And, and I think just building on what we've just heard, I mean, a um, couple of things. So I, I, I think I, I'm so reluctant uh, uh, to build on the narrative of, you know, what goods come from COVID. Because I actually don't have a lot of goods from COVID at all. Um, so, um, but nevertheless, I think it did act as a catalyst for change. And what it did do was start to kind of uh, say, okay, yeah, accelerate some of those responses. Um, but of course, what we and um, what we've heard, it, it amplified some of the challenges. Um, it increased the visibility and the vulnerability of people who are street homeless. So. Yeah, I I think what we, you know, at BC Housing, we wanted to to try and make ourselves, given uh, at the end of the day, we are government and we're not known for our nimbleness and and, um, fast approach. But at BC Housing, I think we are. So we try to be as nimble and as flexible and creative in our approach. And so I I think, yeah, um, whether it's the shelter and the pod arrangement. Um, debatable whether that would have happened without um covert uh, because of course the, it, it helped create the social distance spacing required but as we also you know it helped at least create a sense of privacy nothing beats your own front door with your own washroom uh, and you know small kitchen area your self-contained space uh, but nevertheless it did create that s- sense of space so uh, yeah i think you're right, Sarah, it's forced us to look afresh at some of the existing models we already had. So whether it's the purchase of, of buildings um um and hotels, then, it, yeah, it's forced to look at this. At the back of my mind, though, there's still something about how do we give people choice? Because I, I think i flexibility, who are so marginalised, so stigmatised. I still think uh, as government... Uh, we're struggling with that a bit. How do we, in the midst of these multiple pandemics, um, with some real structural historical challenges uh, around homelessness, how do we kind of um, still give people choice um, and make sure that people are informed about what they can choose? That That's still a bit of a challenge, given some of the huge political Context that we uh, homelessness and housing exist in across this province. Yeah, yeah.
0: Danielle, did you want to add to that at all? Yeah, and I I would say that BC Housing
1: was able to be a little bit opportunistic with the leasing of the hotels with the hospitality sector. um, You know, not not having any patrons during this time, so we were able to lease some of the spaces and uh, and acquire some, but you know, should there be a rebounding in the economy at some point in time? Hopefully there's some sort of light at the end of the tunnel where we're we're not in this particular space anymore, but um, just some of the spaces that we've been able to secure maybe won't be available forever. So we really have to do, we really do have to look at some longer term options um, sooner than later.
0: Yeah. Um, it was interesting to hear, uh, I think Tanya, you mentioned this, that there was a difference between the hotels that you leased and the ones that The province owned in terms of restrictions and rules and working with private owners. Um, So yeah, that's something to think about. Hmm, I've written a bunch of notes here, I've been really enjoying your presentations and and the conversation. And I would invite people on the line if you have questions, we do have time here. Um, This is a really incredibly hardworking and busy group of people. (laughs) And so pulling them all in on to this call today, um, this is a rare opportunity for you to talk with them uh, as frontline workers and people that are out there as well. So I'd encourage you to do that. Um, I just wanted to touch briefly on the, it's not a, so much a paradox as, you know, bringing people inside and giving them privacy is good in terms of uh, contagious illnesses, but it has created challenges in terms of isolation and overdose. And so what kind of measures, I know you talked about this, providing more medical care, checking in with people, but what kind of um, trends have you seen in either new kinds of staff or new programs to help people who now have privacy, but then might increase their risk of overdose? So those two things aren't always, don't work out together.
7: Um, If, I think the start of that thing is what we're talking about. Is what I'm I'm talking about is the risk of overdose and dying alone in your room occurs when you're in a stigmatized environment that you feel as though you have to use by yourself in your mm-hmm. room. I'm not saying it can't happen in de stigmatized environments where I'm just tired. I want to use my bed.
8: And if you're yeah. already accustomed to that's that's your routine. Yeah. You know, uh, you're I used use. to. The, I go to my room and I use. That's what I've done for. However long this is, just this is just what I do. So of course we do experience that in our environments as well. Yeah.
7: But for me, when we're taking somebody into one of the isolation units at the Lark Hostel or one of the isolation units in the in the RVs, right, which are deeply isolated and by themselves with people doing outreach to them, the conversation we have is like, I actually don't care about your legal name. I don't care a lot about your date of birth um, because, I, you know, as long as you're past 19 <laughs> um, because you might have any good reason not to tell me those things. Here's actually what I care about. What do you use? What do you use? And here's why, because I don't want you going in here and dying alone. Can you contact me with just a buzzer to the staff that are on or myself when you're going to use? All we're going to do is text you or call you in five minutes. That's it. I'm just going to text you. All you can say on the text response to me is F off, Duncan. And I'm like, perfect. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, and those are those wins. But what, I'm, what we're doing in that space is that like nothing has to be hidden here. This is, this is a performance of pain management that if it were prescribed to you, no one would bat an eye. And it's an interesting thing where we've actually come to a place in our society where if I take a prescribed pill, I'm sick. Right, of opioids, just like fentanyl or anything else that's on the street. If I crush up that pill and I snort it, I'm a partier. If I take that exact same pill, nothing else changed. I crush it and I cook it, I inject it. I'm a junkie. But how do we get medicine into you in a hospital? (laughs) Introvenously. So this stuff's getting pretty arbitrary in its concept of how we value those structures. And so for us, and the work we're trying to do here with other me- technological interventions like overdose intervention tools, you don't want to tell me anything, is hey, I literally, your name, your date of birth are great, whatever they are. You'd be surprised how many people come to our shelter that are like Daffy Duck born April 20th, 1969. For 2069, everyone's born that day. It's incredible. All those things are unimportant. What do you use? Mm-hmm. What do you use? And we, actively worry about that only because we worry about your life
8: and sometimes it's baby steps too even within our housing like somebody who's very private very and 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 even somebody that we've responded to multiple overdoses on so it's conversations of like hey do you want to just let me know when you're just let the staff know when you're going to use we'll come and check on you in five minutes or are you comfortable having Uh, One of your resident, like one of your resident neighbors who's trained in Narcan, if you leave your door a bit open and they sit outside on a chair, we've done all these things, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. We've done all of them, Uh, you know, so whatever it's going to take to have somebody feel comfortable enough, or sometimes it's getting them a, a smartphone that they can download the lifeguard app on and use it themselves, you know, if they want more autonomy within it. So, I mean, again, we have to stay creative. And, and again, we have to be talking to each person about, you know, and you're not going to get through to everybody, but we have to try.
6: So, yeah, connection it, is my plan.
8: Mm-hmm.
0: And also, too, it sounds like there's been more um, coordination and on-site, like OPSs is on-site, mm-hmm. more medical staff, more training for staff, more uh, time, allocated to checking on people
8: hey yeah, we yeah have- i we've got more staff go ahead <laughs> <laughs> no i think i think
2: from our perspective i think one thing we uh we i mean again it, this is this is a bit kind of mom and apple pie but you know the need for housing and health to be more integrated in our approach <laughs> is such a key obvious point but again this has been highlighted uh by both pandemics um and also, uh, I think what I hear from with my provincial hat on is uh, we need more than beyond just a, an OPS site where uh, I think D- Duncan touched on this. Yeah, I mean, it is about how you approach it, but we need a real kind of um, more flexible approach beyond just an OPS site. Um, we we we've we we've as people who provide housing on this call know that we have in our contractual requirements now wellness checks, and uh, that came in about three or four years ago pre COVID. Um, we're trying to learn the lessons of that. We um, over the last twelve months though, which is during the COVID time, we have really um, accelerated at BC housing level our dialogue with their uh, peer support programs. We, we now fund peer support programs like we never used to. Uh, people who witness whether well, using drugs, this is something we never did 12 months ago.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, um, I, I had dialogue in the last kind of 12 months with a number of provincial entities for groups which I didn't really know existed, really. Um, but I, I think, you know, it, it's, it, it's, this is where we really have tried to be, both at a funder and obviously a provider level in particular but at a funder level, to try and be, okay, what do we need to put in place to keep people as safe as they can be? Um, what do we need to put in place, uh, given that all our communities are very different, of course, that really, wherever possible, remove those barriers of stigma, stigmatization um and keep people safe. Um, so, yeah, it's a real kind of challenge, yeah. It's really positive.
0: I really appreciate the provincial and the funding aspect, Dominic, because I think um, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes, um, as well as on the front lines to, to make all of these moving parts happen. Um, we're just about 10 minutes to go here, and I wanted to talk briefly about um, the challenges faced in smaller communities versus um places where there's more, maybe more opportunity for collaboration and resources. And obviously, uh, it's been a challenge for everybody. But I wanted to ask Alison and Brandy in particular, um, was there anything that you found worked really well or was particularly challenging being in a smaller community? So, the background of that is that a lot of people on our calls and get training via webinar, they might be the only place in town they might be the only shelter maybe they also do housing advocacy work maybe they do everything like in Prince Rupert there's one place that everybody goes um and I wanted you to just touch on that if you could
4: can you think of anything in particular like I think one thing that comes to mind immediately for a smaller town is just and in particular in response to a COVID outbreak was finding um like i mentioned in my webinar a uh a prescribing physician for safer supply that's been a huge barrier for us in this community with trying to help people get on safer supply um, and even we didn't even have a public ops until a year ago and i would imagine some of the communities that are on here right now might still not have one so those are some of the barriers that we've faced in that that regard um we, we've been really lucky in this community because we have really good relations with all the other organizations. So the collaboration typically is completely in sync. So we're really blessed in that regard. Um, that might not happen in all communities. Um, just happens to be like we have a great city social planner with amazing values that really wants the community connected. So, so it's made things work very well. Here for us in responding and in particular working with a lot of organizations with the same type of values that are very compassionate and, and caring and client centered as well yeah
0: that's good and actually Duncan and Tanya kind of the flip side of this is that sometimes it's harder to keep track of people um well I'm that's poor language. What I mean to say is it's harder to connect with and, and follow along with someone when there's so many services. I remember when I worked in the downtown side, realizing that there were over 120 organizations in, you know, a square mile. And um, it was a bit overwhelming. So, how have you dealt with that uh, working here in the Lower Mainland?
8: I mean, I think, I think collaboration is also key here, mm-hmm. for sure. And um, you're right, there are lots of organizations and I think we still learn about new, new ones are ones that we weren't aware of all the time um and I mean I, I think you know especially in the downtown east side that there has been you know there's lots of historical reasons why people uh, more people uh, that were vulnerable ended up in this community a lot of it was economics and real estate and um you know, we just had the 35-year anniversary of the opening of Expo 86, and that's actually when we saw the shift of, um, you know, as fun as Expo was for most of us, it, that's when, you know, a, you know a, a coat of paint got slapped onto, um, you know, units on Granville Street and rented for hundreds and hundreds of dollars to tourists at night, and, and a bunch of people lost their housing. So the downtown east side did truly become the only place where people could get a welfare rate room, uh, including seniors. And so, of course, supports, um, you know, get developed in the neighbourhood where there seem to be the most needed. Uh, but I can tell you that they're actually needed in every single neighbourhood. Uh, you know, when we first opened Insight, one of the first people I saw come through uh, was somebody that I knew from high school in the Dunbar area. Because it was the only one available, and so I think um, again with the destigmatization, you know, we need that across the board. We need it in every neighborhood. People to accept, hey, my neighbor's son is mentally ill, or this person's really struggling with this. What can we do instead of always uh, resisting? So you know, you're going to have everything's too concentrated in the downtown east side, and then you're going to have the whoa, 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 no, not no. over here. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think we all need to, to work a, a lot harder to work together to recognize that it really is stigma that's, um, that's creating right. a lot of these divisions.
7: And those communication pathways, when you have a multitude of, of service providers and places where people access different uh, their need, they get their needs met by a multitude of people, the reliant component there is on your internal logging. Your internal organization. organization. Your internal what the information you keep every time you create that link to somebody yeah. that your, goes to file. Yeah, your
8: staff following up. Yeah, uh, with you know act teams, mental health teams, uh, whatever it is, um, having those ongoing conversations, uh, checking in with the, the resident or the shelter guest or the the uh, person coming to your overdose prevention site or, or inside or whatever it is to because the conversation conversation can change right people's what people needs can change on a daily basis a monthly basis a yearly basis so Um, i think a lot of it is not assuming again what somebody needs but really constant check-in and follow-up and and connecting them to as many services that they want to be and, and and that are appropriate um you know, for that person's care. And it can get very challenging, because everybody has different modus operandi, everybody has different working hours, and people have different philosophies, and and different rules of of work and engagement. So I think, uh, you know, it's always going to be complicated. But I think if there's a willingness to, again, keep it deeply client-centered across the board, uh, then that's where we're going to have more success and where we have seen success.
7: And, yeah. I, and I think part of that exists here as well as in smaller communities. It's been touched on that one of the great challenges is that it's challenging. It's hard to find physicians who are willing to prescribe, right? Mm-hmm. On the premise of this, this, the medical scientific notions and, and by order of Bonnie, Henry, and everyone below her, uh, them, uh, that is no longer an excuse. And I think we'd be pretty up in arms if we had a collection of physicians in remote areas that refused to prescribe birth control, to uh, teenage, uh, to any woman, quite frankly, to any woman, uh, we would be up in arms. And I think it actually also behooves all of us um, to actively make that statement that that is simply unacceptable. And that there are a multitude of uh, numbers that physician can call at the provincial level, right up against Bonnie, (laughs) that speaks to if if we just removed the notion that this was safe supply and replaced it with you can generally find you're going off path when if you just remove the term drug or addiction and put in any other medical condition and like, ooh, that would probably land us at the Hague International Criminal Court, you're probably not on the great on a great pathway. Mm-hmm. And I think the safe supply conversation and that tracking and building on individuals demands that we, as the advocates that we all are do those pushes in a gentle and caring, empathetic way, right up until that empathetic pathway is no longer open to us.
0: Thank you. Oh, I I feel like I just want to keep talking to you all day. (laughs) 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 Um, Danielle and and Dominic, I just wonder if you could just address um, how frontline service providers can continue to interact with, Uh, BC Housing. I know that there's lots of pathways to get in touch with you and everything, but are there any, is there anything new that's come out of the pandemic in terms of uh, connecting with all these different organizations? Um, Is there, you know, especially in smaller towns, do you have regional um, contacts or is there anything you can point us to? So we can continue to have this conversation and this collaboration.
2: Yeah, good points. I mean, I I think we can never, I mean, communicate enough. I mean, I I do remember uh, when we started the first, uh, again, we all got slammed by COVID. We didn't know what to expect and uh, what would the impact be. But in those early days of March, we had weekly meetings uh, and I was on each call, (laughs) which was a bit scary for me anyway, probably a bit scary for for other people as well. But I was on the call for the first kind of, uh, person with the, the the shelter group and then that blossomed into housing and then the, the the local kind of directors took it over and that was great so i i think there's a lot of kind of um good work that has happened all last year that again i think we can apply i i i, I do think uh, just again with my kind of provincial hat on that it, what we learn on these kind of calls is, is so much what we have in common and that kind of need for common learning um, and you know, uh, I, I, I've great to see Alison and folks from Ven on the call because my like, day started with Nanette and team and the interior team talking about some of the challenges. You know, um, a day doesn't go by when we're, we're not talking about protecting the seams or Kelowna or you know, and there are so many common issues um, that we are now dealing with. So I think that's good, actually um because it means that it, victoria vancouver we can just kind of step away and say there's lessons to be learned in those communities but this is now across the board
6: mm-hmm.
2: um and so we need both that balance between that provincial and community by community approach but yeah i mean coming out of things like this please uh keep your local folks involved any questions comments let danielle and i know yeah mm-hmm.
8: i think that's very true dominic i think that people Uh, seen us all on this webinar the number of times that uh that Duncan and I were nodding to what Allison and Brandy were saying and vice versa I think we're you know (laughs) different like same boat so
0: yes totally (laughs) (laughs) well I just want to say thank you oh Danielle you were gonna
1: no I just I was gonna say I think that maybe I'm a little bit more glass half full uh than Dominic about some positives that are coming out of COVID because I I even think of our early conversations with all of the different health authorities and public health. And we really hadn't engaged a lot with public health before. It was really like the mental health and substance use teams or ACT teams, ICM teams, all of that kind of thing. That's really where we had the connections. And um, if you were on some of those earlier calls with the varying health authorities, uh, they didn't know the environments in which that were working or that you're working. Um, You know, in emergency shelter, a lot of the initial response we got was, We'll put this this person in a room to self isolate, and we're trying to explain there isn't a room.
6: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and so, uh, I think that in terms of our our opportunities in education with public health, both on the COVID trend and possibly even on the um, the opioid um, uh, epidemic, that I think this maybe creates some good inroads for us with um, relationships and partnerships.
0: Mm. I think that's a great place to land, you know, just as we're learning that increased connection and relationship building with our clients um, on an individual basis is really helping helping get them the services they need and removing barriers. The same is true when we work together across organizations. Hey? So,
2: thank you. And I just want to take this moment to say, give a great shout out to uh, everybody at HHSBC and Stephen and crew who I think have really kind of stepped up the last 12 months and try and, you know, had a really important dialogue with BC housing at provincial level, at a community level. And I, when I see these upcoming webinars, it just kind of makes my heart sing in some ways because it just shows the importance of the work. Um, at the moment, I'm very much involved in, uh, health and housing. So when I see something on May the 19th around palliative care and home homelessness, how yeah. important that work is. Um, how important we get those connections between health, Homeless and housing better addressed. So it's, it's really encouraging to see uh, these topics uh, in, in, the, in the weeks ahead being addressed.
0: Well, I can't promote them any better than you just have done. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, as uh, um, do check out our upcoming trainings. You can find them on our website. Uh, register for them. We've got lots coming up. This is just May, not even all of what's happening in May. So do join us. I really want to say thank you. Um, sometimes it can be challenging to really get to the, the guts of the conversation, especially across multiple levels of management and government and, and policy. But I really want to say thank you to all of you for going there today um, and for bringing your frontline experience as well as what's going on behind the scenes. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the truth telling. I appreciate the the focus on destigmatization, and I think these are conversations that we absolutely need to keep having. So I would really um, love to see all of you on the line again at some point. I know we're going to continue to have lots to talk about. So thank you for your time today. Wonderful.
4: Thank you very much. Thanks everyone. Great pleasure. Everybody, take care. Good to see you, Dominic. Yeah. See you all. Bye. Bye nice everyone. Time. Take care. <laughs>
0: HSABC is a provincial, member-driven organization, and our mandate is to strengthen and unify services across BC that are addressing the needs of those experiencing homelessness. Right now, so many of our members, as well as their friends, families, colleagues and clients are facing unprecedented challenges, as well as a total change to our daily lives. And we're here to help support you on the front lines, however we can. You keep showing up, even in the most intense and difficult of circumstances, for the most vulnerable. Thank you for all the work you do and for continuing to do it every day. Our website is hsa-bc.ca and you can find COVID-19 specific resources for frontline and shelter workers, including handouts, posters, webinar video, news and health authority updates, and much more. You can also email us at info@hsa-bc.ca, at or find us on Twitter at underscore hsabc. Stay calm. Stay safe. Stay strong.